NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Hey, it's Rachel Cook, your modern mentor. I'm the founder of Lead Above Noise, a firm specializing in helping teams and organizations create better working experiences that activate better results. Today, I am excited to bring you this interview with Francis Fry, professor of technology and operations management at Harvard Business School, host of the Fixable podcast, and author of several books, including her latest, Move Fast and Fix Things, The Trusted Leader's Guide to Solving Hard Problems. Francis developed one of the most popular classes at Harvard Business School, which explores business models that reliably delight customers. Francis is someone I've admired from afar for some time, and it was an honor and a pleasure to have her on the show. In this interview, we cover why speed has gotten such a bad name in business, why inclusion and neurodiversity are some of the most underutilized secrets to great business outcomes, why emotions at work can fuel success, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my interview with Francis. Francis Fry, I am awkwardly fangirly, super duper excited to have you join me on the Modern Mentor Podcast. Welcome and thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for the invitation, Rachel. So I would love to start with the name of your new book. It has been some decades since this whole philosophy of move fast and break things kind of hit the scene. I think at that time, I was probably parenting toddlers and felt very uncomfortable with that. I loved the sentiment of move fast, but breaking things is not a thing all of us are are really comfortable with. So now the title of your book is all about moving fast and fixing things. And I would love to just get a little bit of background as to how that came to be. Yeah. And it, it comes from the same place, which is we were also uncomfortable with it and and what we found is that that phrase gave speed a bad name because what people thought is i can either move fast or i can take care of people one or the other and so it actually people that shouldn't have been slowing down were slowing down um as a result because they thought if i went fast i must therefore break things and so a main impetus for reading this book is that we have found that meaningful change happens quickly. But because speed has such a bad reputation, we needed to teach people how to do it well. We find that if you try to move fast and break things, and I move fast and fix things, I can not only go faster than you, I can go higher than you. So it was a suboptimized claim that somebody poured liquid cement on, and we're going to try to now chop away at that. 
I love that answer. And I feel like what it does is this thing that I find myself doing often, which is looking at phrases that sound great on a bumper sticker, but in practice, like live each day, like it's your last is great advice until the bank comes calling for your mortgage payment the next day, right? And I think I think what you did was question something that sounds good and sexy and compelling, but at the end of the day, a lot of us are operating from a place of fear. We may be working in a highly regulated space. And so what does experimenting and innovating look like when we should rightfully be afraid of breaking things? So I think that's a big piece of why just from the title page alone, your book was so compelling for me. So you reference your earlier work in this book, much of which, by the way, is how you came to be a name in my brain and in my household. And I've actually talked on this podcast before about the trust triangle, the work that you've published around that, the TED Talk that you did around understanding your trust wobble. And I would love to talk to you a little bit about kind of what makes trust such a critical driver of success and how can organizations gain more self-awareness on an individual level, on an organizational level around where their employees are experiencing trust and and where they're not and what those opportunities might look like. Oh, I love I love all of that rich setup. So in the presence of trust, people give us the benefit of the doubt. They don't relitigate our decisions after the meeting. And so it has a very close link to speed. In the absence of trust, decisions that were agreed to get unagreed to. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you have to just keep relitigating. Also, in the absence of trust, people ask us to compromise way more than is optimal. Because if I don't trust you and you have a bold idea, I'm not going to let you do the bold idea. I might let you do an incremental idea. And so trust affects speed and quality in really important ways. And so that's the first thing about trust. The second thing about trust is that we, for a long time, acted like we were blessed if we had it, cursed if we didn't, but there wasn't really anything we could do about it. And then the third thing is whenever people got action-oriented about trust, they acted on the mistaken conventional wisdom that trust is like a Fabergé egg. And once you break it, it can never be repaired again. None of those statements are true. You can build trust quickly. You can rebuild it quickly. But what it takes is understanding its component parts. And so when we figured out the component parts of trust, that's when we tried to just democratize access to the whole world to understand that we've been wasting time on trust. That is, a we've been spending way too much time and not getting nearly the return. And now that we understand that trust has three component parts, every single time that trust breaks down anywhere in the world, between any two individuals, any two stakeholders, it's always because of one of three reasons. It's either you doubt my authenticity, my logic, or my empathy. Mm-hmm. There's not a fourth. I Frankly, we look forward to there being a fourth. But mm-hmm. after doing this with hundreds of thousands of people, It's going to take some kind of externality for a fourth to appear. But so far, these three do it. And so one, that just narrows in what we have to look for. And then when trust is broken, one of these three gets in the way or what we say wobbles. And we use that word, it's meant to be playful, not too terrifying, and that it it wobbles, but it needn't fall down. We can actually steady our wobble. And that's what much of our work is, is that if you have not been able to earn someone's trust, like if you trust me, it's my obligation. 
I don't want to rely on you giving me trust. I'd rather earn it because that's more robust. So if I haven't earned your trust, it's going to be that you're doubting one of these three. One of these three will wobble. And we have prescriptions for how to overcome each distinct wobble. I love that there is nothing broken. There's nothing in there that one can't fix. I will date myself by recalling the weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Indeed. That yes. is what's in our head. Yes. I love it. Weebles and I can, wobble, but they don't fall down is exactly <laughs> I can picture it. the little, yes. little obelisk characters. Yeah. Literally, But it always that. stays upright. Always stays upright. Yeah. It always can come back. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, you talk about those three and I, I hear you that you're waiting for there to be a fourth, but it's a triangle. And I'm really, I really feel attached to the triangle. Well, I, I, good news. I think it's sticking around. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when I think about those three components, I mean, to me, logic makes sense. That is the facts. You have to trust my facts, right? I think empathy is a concept that we've danced around a little bit. I think that we collectively have come to have a bit of a clearer understanding of what empathy is. It's not sympathy. It's not compassion, right? I think we're fairly clear on that. I do feel like authenticity is the piece where people are still kind of struggling with the question of does, does being authentic mean oversharing? Does it mean I can't have privacy? I can't have boundaries. And so I would love, Francis, if you would share kind of your your definition of authenticity and, and how you help leaders kind of toe that line. Because it's it's messy. Yeah, I love this. So first, we authenticity, you can think of as a, you know, you go from 0% authentic to 100% authentic. If people are at the low single digits of percentage of authentic, that is, the real me is not showing up very often. And what I mean by that, it's not that the unreal me is showing up, but I'm just not showing, I'm not giving very much insight into who I am. If you're really low on the authenticity continuum, you will be trusted more if you can somehow get the courage to show up as the real you. But I'm very clear in talking about this is that authenticity is co-produced. So my authenticity requires my courage, but it also requires whoever else is in the conversation with me to be sending me a signal that my authenticity is welcome. So the reason authenticity is the hardest of these three is it's the only one that's co-produced. I can work on the rigor of my logic. I can work on my empathy and make sure that I'm inclusive of you in the beautiful calculus that I'm doing in that logic. But I can have all the courage in the room. And if I walk into in the world and I walk into a hostile room, ah, that authenticity is just going right back away. So I think that's the first thing is that authenticity is co-produced. The second part is that if you're low down on the authenticity continuum, more is more. But if you're really high up on it, and this is to your oversharing point, less is more. So the way to think about it is nobody should be 100% authentic, certainly not at work. I leave some of that at home, like my goodness. And if you're wondering for like, what's a good rule of thumb? It's somewhere between two thirds and three quarters should show up. Okay. And so somewhere between 33 and 25%, you should judiciously not bring in there. And so I think that takes care of the oversharing. And so this I, is essentially how much of me is going to show up. But I do want to say this is distinct from being inauthentic. And inauthentic is when I'm performing one thing, but it's not actually me. The punishment for that is super brisk and absolute. When we pretend we care and we don't, 
people will doubt our authenticity in a second. In 2023, the human species are connoisseurs Mm -hmm. of anything that's performative. And so it might feel like a shortcut. Oh, I can fake it till I make it. Oh, no, no, you can't with authenticity. I think that's a really kind of important bit of tough love, right? I think we do all need to hear that. But I also think there's space, keep me honest here, that if you are a person who tends to be very analytical, very data-driven, you're not naturally a highly emotive person, I think part of being authentic can be just being upfront with your team. Like, this is how I show up. You know, when I am here and I am caring and I'm listening, I'm going to own, I, I don't do feelings well. I don't do stories well. It's just not kind of the natural me. And I don't want to be performative, but I want to acknowledge that it may not look like what you think authentic should look like. I, I think there's space to do that, right? Yeah, I would say it. in my mind, it depends if you're a leader or an individual contributor. So if you're an individual contributor, okay. But realize that your people are probably at risk of doubting your empathy, not your authenticity, but your mm. empathy. So when I okay. say I don't do feelings... I have to make sure that it's at least that I'm not denying your humanity in the lack of my <laughs> not doing feelings. So that's fair. the first thing I would say. The second thing is that when we're leaders, we have to set the conditions for other people's authenticity, empathy, and logic to come out. And so there, I think we have to learn how to be ambidextrous. It's mm. It can't just be all analytical and you can't just be all emotional because for example if someone has an emotional problem with something there is no amount of analytics you're going to pile on that's going to convince them right and if someone has an analytic problem there's no amount of emotion so we need our leaders to be bilingual so i guess there's a sufficient condition of doing emotion that's necessary for leaders okay fair thank you for that so i read your book as you know. And I think one of the things that really struck me is that it's published by Harvard, right? Yeah. Harvard Business Review. I'm I mean, this is player. obviously a <laughs> team player. I wear the jersey, the whole thing. I love it. It's, it's good. <laughs> Crimson is an excellent color. It's obviously, you know, of the highest academic caliber, but at the same time, the way that it's written, it's so consumable, it's so accessible and digestible. And so you know, I imagine that plenty of your readers are probably sitting in an altitude of an organization where they're not necessarily in the ivory tower. They're not empowered to make the big decisions. And they might be sitting in a in a mindset of, you know, that sounds like a great idea, Francis, but I don't really have control over that big thing. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you advise these leaders on how to be in touch with their own agency and how we can start kind of gently nudging people into this mindset. Anne and I are in a chapter in our lives where we're all about democratizing access to everything we know. So we already get to speak to the rarefied CEOs. We don't have to write a book. We don't have to have a podcast to do that. This this is meant to communicate to the people that are unlikely to have an audience with us. And so I would say it's to the people that aren't at the rarefied air of the altitude mm. where you are going to be tempted whenever you see something that needs to be done. Other people are going to try to lure you into doing less and taking longer. I don't care where you are in the organization. It's human nature. 
Mm-hmm. And this book is essentially an ode to just block off those exit ramps. And that we have never, ever met anyone on the end of successful change that has said to us, I wish I had done less. I wish I had taken longer. And yet we are constantly imploring one another to do less and take longer. So what I would say is for, I don't care where you are. I don't care if it's your first job, your last job, any job in between, you're going to see things that on your watch could be better. And we want you to have the tools to take action on it now. I mean, we organize the book by days of the week. Yes. It's a bit of a metaphor, but we also think really hard problems can be solved in five days. Now, many organizations and many people stuff those five days into a year, into two years. That doesn't make the solutions better by doing that. So the the sense of urgency, I think, applies to everyone. And Anne and I often talk about having can-do lesbian spirit. And that's our very playful way of saying we think there's an inner lesbian in, in everyone. And that inner lesbian is the one who's just going to get it done. And I don't know if you have many lesbians in your life, but they're just the ones that if... If the tire blows out on the side of the road, you just hope you have a lesbian in the car because she's going to jack up the car. She's going to change. You know, this is just this is the very loving caricature of lesbians out there. Well, that's what this book is for. It's to unleash that can do spirit in all of us. And with the cautionary tale, everyone else is going to be like, oh, wait for AAA. Oh, you sure? And progress is made by those with can do spirit. I understand that it is a play on stereotypes that are out there, but absolutely that spirit of wherever you are, wherever you're sitting, there is always something you can do at your altitude. So roll up your Make sleep. the world better. So okay. do it. Absolutely. So do it. We, we don't want you to hold yourself back from making the world better in whatever sphere of influence you have. I love that. And I'm, I'm sitting with it and I'm, I'm trying to connect it back a little bit to some of our earlier conversation about just the importance of there being trust in an organization, right? Because you have to feel a sense of safety, a sense that I can roll up my sleeves and try something and I am not going to be deeply and profoundly punished for it because of the trust that there that exists. In, in, in fact, the we encourage that you are celebrated for it in particular yeah. when it doesn't go well that's when the celebration really needs to occur. I am such a big believer in that. And I tell clients this all the time. I think we as leaders tend to over-index on celebrating results when what we need to be celebrating is the behaviors like risk-taking and experimenting and even asking the quote-unquote dumb questions. I think when we are mindful of kind of recognizing and raising those behaviors up, that's where we start to see change. So I, I love that. And and if people can't get away from measuring results, I would just add the result of learning. Absolutely. How much did you learn? And then it's not whether or not it was a positive or a negative outcome associated with it. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So let's talk about one of my most hated expressions in the workplace, truly. (laughs) And I hear it all the time. (laughs) And it is don't bring me problems, oh, yeah. bring me solutions, right? And I know leaders love to say this. And again, from a bumper sticker perspective, I understand its resonance, but- I've been railing against this one for decades. Uh, good. I'm going to get right behind you. Yeah. Talk to me about it. Talk sure. to me about what sure. is so terrible. Yeah. So here's why it's terrible. Problem identification can possibly be an individual sport. 
right? An individual could find a problem. But if it's a problem of substance, no way can it be solved by one person. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing when we say, don't bring me problems unless you bring me solutions, is we're saying, please only bring me the least significant problems you encounter. The ones where the problem identification can be co-located with the solution. What it misses is all of the rest of them that are actually going to make a difference in the world where the solution to them is a cross-functional, deliberate, you know, well-curated effort. So the unfortunate consequence of don't bring me a problem without bringing me a solution is organizations that do that have a very slow improvement trajectory. Because they're only focusing on the small. Only focusing on, there are some problems that can be co-located with solutions. They're just not meaningful ones. And just to follow that logic out, it sounds like it's not going to sort of lubricate collaboration across functions because you're focusing on the problems that are solvable within your own little world. Yeah, if you can solve it, Great, but I just don't think it's going to make that big of a difference in the world. But we are great problem spotters. So I love unleashing the problem spotters in the world. And then let's collectively find solutions of consequence. So many teenagers waiting to be adopted from foster care feel like their lives are over. They've given up hope of having a permanent home and are terrified of aging out with no support system. Right now, More than 113,000 children are waiting to be adopted in the U.S. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is dedicated to finding them the right family before it's too late. Learn how you can help at davethomasfoundation.org slash learn more. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash skills. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Okay, I want to move on a little bit because... You talk in your book about the power of inclusion, moving beyond just diversity. And it's something you actually dedicate a fair amount of time to. You talk about your four levels of inclusion in the book. And I would love for you to just talk a little bit about those and maybe share some insights on how we can start to move the needle from wherever we're sitting. Yeah. So I'll begin with why I am so devoted to inclusion and One of the reasons is that as an operations management professor, so I care about how things work and how to improve them, there is nothing else on the planet that can compete with the power of inclusion and in terms of the advantage it gives an organization. And with no new people and no new technology, but simply the mindset shift of being inclusive 
we have seen organizations improve employee engagement and business performance 200 to 500%. There is nothing else that can do this for free. So my operations soul identifies this as the most valuable accelerant of performance on the planet. It's also, in my personal values point of view, the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. But it's my operations management soul that I hope to convince everyone else to do it. And Anne and I are working like mad to open source the access to this. But I'll say that companies that want to have a ridiculous competitive advantage, you have about five years left. That's how long we think it's going to take us to have every corner of the globe understand its power. Okay. So you can still get a fleeting competitive advantage, but the benefit is enormous. And when some people are like, how could it be 2x to 5x? I just will give this example. Gallup does a beautiful job at telling us what the average, the typical employee engagement is. So a typical employee at a typical company in the world, and it's somewhere around 20%. That has a 5x upside. And inclusion solves it completely. And business performance and employee engagement are super, super mm -hmm. closely aligned. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I am a big believer that the best companies with the best product services strategies in the world are only as strong as the talent who's building them, selling them, delivering them. And that talent is only as strong as they are engaged. And inclusion is a tremendous driver of that, even without statistics, intuitively, intuitively. it makes so yeah. much sense. And with the companies that we work with that get this 2x to 5x, they will sheepishly admit that they weren't sure mm -hmm. that there was going to be, they did it like faith-based. Sure. And then afterwards, they are devout about the power of it. So you asked, how do you do it? So how do you do yes. this miracle grow? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and the way it works is that it begins with, it's the job of all of us. So it's also co-produced in, um, and it's a very close cousin of authenticity. But it's the job of all of us to make sure each of us feels safe. Now, if I'm in the sweet spot of power in an organization, chances are I feel safe, right? Mm -hmm. That if I'm, it's usually when we're on the margins, and that could be we're distant from power, we're underrepresented in some way. And so the way we talk about this is despite any difference that any of us is bringing to the table, it's the job of all of us to make sure each of us feels safe. Now you can double click on safe. It's physical safety, emotional safety, psychological safety. Don't bother going to step two until you do step one. The return on step two will be zero. So this is a progressive thing. Then once we've achieved safety, Despite any glorious difference that any of us brings to the table, it's the job of all of us to make sure each of us feels welcome. And welcome, you know, you know what it's like intuitively. You walk into a room where even if it's strangers, you're welcomed versus even if they know you, you're not welcome. <laughs> like you can just there. And then the inclusion really accelerates. And then it's because of our uniqueness, we're celebrated. And this part is really important because 
as a human species, we tend to celebrate sameness without even realizing it. So if you said something, Rachel, that I also wanted to say, chances are I would say to you, Rachel, you're awesome. Right. You said what I was going to say. We mm-hmm. celebrate commonality. It's like what we do instinctually. Well, for inclusion, we actually want to try to reserve some of that and instead celebrate uniqueness. So I want to wait for you to say something I couldn't possibly have thought on my own. And that's when I want to celebrate you. And the things that you could come up with that I, well, are vast that you know that I don't know, but are some combination of all of the jobs that you've had, your lived experience, how you've metabolized successes and failures, if you're lucky enough to have neurodiversity, like all of this stuff gives you uniqueness. If we celebrate uniqueness, you are more likely to show up. If we celebrate sameness, we are unlikely to be very good, honestly, and unlikely to show up. So celebration of uniqueness is the third one. And then the fourth one is championed. And the way we think about this is that let's say I'm celebrating your uniqueness in my presence. My job is to then go and champion you. And I champion you by, let's say I'm invited into a room that you're not invited into. I want to celebrate your uniqueness in your absence. That's what champion is. So I don't want in that room to be like, oh, Rachel, she's really good. She's a good team member. I don't want to say all these generic, vague, common statements. I want to have glorious operational detail about what it is specifically about your uniqueness that makes you invaluable. And that's what I want to be doing in the room that you're not yet allowed into. When people feel safe, welcome, celebrated for their uniqueness and are championed in their absence, that's when we move people up the inclusion dial. And it's when everybody moves up the inclusion dial, that's where the that pot of gold of the 2X to 5X is. Oh, man, that was that was beautiful. That really hit me in a place, you know, candidly, and I've talked about this on the show before. So I have two daughters, uh, one of whom is quite neurodiverse. I have never heard somebody use that phrase to be lucky enough to have oh, neurodiverse. Yeah, it's a superpower. It's a superpower. I think the world doesn't always teach us that, but it's yeah. starting to. And yeah. I hope that more and more people like her and unlike her um, start to find their way to feeling special and successful in that way. And, and I hear you. Absolutely. I even watch my daughter and just the way that she demonstrates curiosity, processes information, generates ideas, and I project her being in the workplace. And she will absolutely someday do things I would never imagine doing. And I think that is something incredible to be opening the corporate world's eyes to. So thank you for that. Yeah, Yeah, I came to it also with one of our sons is lucky enough to be neurodiverse. The other one is really looking for what's his special thing now because he, and it's true, the one that's neurodiverse, the chance of him coming up with something unique is super high probability, super high probability. So in our house, it's a superpower. And I agree with you. I want that to be contagious. You have a tremendous way with words. I cannot be the first person to tell you that. I imagine you talk about 
the importance of storytelling and you describe that as a leadership skill. And I think we're we're slowly starting to embrace that. I think we're slowly starting to embrace a lot of things in the workplace. What can you share about yeah. what makes a leader a good storyteller and, and how do we sort of amplify that skill? So I think that we should think about the written word and the spoken word. They're different. So mm-hmm. if you read our books and you like them, Anne is a beautiful writer. So my wife and Morris, we do all of our work together, writing and the rest of it. The written word, she is a connoisseur. And the word you're hearing, you might hear my voice echoing in having said it, but it's her writing um, for that part. For the spoken word, we both do that. But because I teach and I'm in front of rooms more often, that's my art form. So hers is written, mine is spoken. And and I think it's good to realize, you. well, I know very few people that can do both, like one of them and figure out which one yours is and then rely on that one is the, is what I would say. Now, the advice I have about how to use storytelling to have greater influence the world, we call it simply deeply communication. And what we mean by that is our job is to understand something so deeply that we can describe it simply. Now, I know a lot of people that understand something deeply and they can only describe it in a complicated way, which just dramatically limits the number of people they're ever going to influence. It's only the people that speak that jargony complexity. And I know another group of people that understand something simply and describe something simply, and they're not adding a whole lot of nutritional value. So the real goal is when you understand something deeply, how many more drafts are you going to do until you can describe it simply? So Mark Twain was right when he said, I apologize for writing you a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short letter. Well, I think that should be the tagline on every idea. I think it should be the tagline on every email. We spend so much time sharing long form things with each other because we didn't take the time. We didn't honor the art of describing simply. Well, Anne and I really, we write a lot of drafts (laughs) before we put anything out there. You know where we take a lot of our inspiration from? Stand-up comedians. Oh. Because they have just brought it down to in its simplest form, but it's like really rich and deep things. And and I think that's what, for the things that matter, for the things that you really want to have an influence, I think you should spend more time revising the ideas than you did creating the idea, because it's in that part that you are going to dictate how many zeros of influence you're going to have? How many people are you going to reach? And it's going to be orders of magnitudes more if you can understand it deeply and describe it simply. I think that's tremendous. And I think back to the very beginning of our conversation where we talked about moving fast, move fast and fix things. And what I think I hear you saying, but again, don't let me put words in your mouth, is that there are some things we should invest the time in to refine and make better and stronger. And there are other things we should be faster and more agile with and and be willing to experiment. I might change that up a little bit. So we think any hard problem can be solved in five days. (laughs) And day five is go as fast as you can. Okay. But it's not day one. It's not day two. It's not day three. It's not day four. Storytelling is day four. So you shouldn't go fast 
until you've learned how to describe something simply that you understand deeply. And then, and it takes only a day, it takes one fifth of the time. Although when, when time is pressed, it's the step that's left out much to the chagrin of people. So I think there's five steps you have to do. And when you've done the first four, then you're in a position to go as fast as you can. So it's not that I think something should be done slowly and something should be done quickly. It's that you have to earn the right to go Mm -hmm. fast. That was a beautiful correction. Thank you. And a reminder that the book is a roadmap that should actually be digested in sequence and everybody should go out and read it. (laughs) (laughs) Ask your library to keep it in stock. Oh, absolutely. So Francis, I know we have covered a lot of ground today and we are coming near the end of time. What is something that maybe I haven't asked you that feels important to share? You know, one of the things that people are surprised we talk about is emotion. Mm-hmm. And that we we believe that emotions are like just amazing accelerants of awesomeness, but we tend to be afraid of emotion at work. And so we just try to dampen and stifle them. So you're too fill in the blank. And then we try to, you're too enthusiastic. You're too angry. You're too, you know, all of these things. And so I guess the last thing I would say is that emotions are, they add zeros to our ability. Like take the emotion of joy. If you spark joy, everything is going to go better. I don't want to stifle it. Or grace. Like if we can really digest that we are all imperfect humans leading imperfect humans, and let's do it with grace. Oh my goodness. And even anger. So that's one where people are like, oh my gosh, don't be angry. And I'm like, well, don't sublimate your anger either because that will... So I'd really love to find what's the real underlying problem underneath your anger. So I want people to talk about these things so that we can we can use them or regret. You know, I like I find regret to be the most useful um, roadmap for what I should not do going forward. Worth its weight in gold. Yeah. So I would say that the the last part is, and we have a a fun part in the book, the ten emotions that are underrated in the workplace. And so I just encourage people to enjoy and let your emotions, I don't think we have to put on a straitjacket when we go into the, I don't think it helps anyone. It somehow feels safer, but it actually comes at a huge performance cost. So I encourage people to take off that straitjacket. That's amazing. And so just to sort of bring this all together, I mean, you and Anne have worked in such a diversity of organizations, incredibly prestigious organizations. You have helped them achieve significant results. And yet so much of what we've talked about today, we've covered authenticity and empathy and neurodiversity and telling stories and showing emotions. And it just sounds like you're really kind of the poster children for humanity and what an incredible driver of actual business performance it can be when we are comfortable with it and we invite it in. Uh, I got goosebumps while you were talking. So thank you. (laughs) Francis, this has been such a rich and beautiful conversation. I have enjoyed absolutely every moment of it and cannot thank you enough for joining me today. Thank you for having me on and thank you for celebrating our book. Oh, beautiful. Congratulations to you and Anne again. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Francis Fry. Francis and her co-author, Anne Morris, recently launched Fixable, 
a breakthrough leadership advice podcast from the TED Audio Collective that helps guest callers solve workplace problems in 30 minutes or less. On Fixable, Francis and Anne diagnose callers' leadership challenges and help them make progress with quick, actionable coaching. Francis and Anne also co-authored Move Fast and Fix Things, the trusted leader's guide to solving hard problems, which is available now wherever books are sold. Join me next week for another great episode. Until then, visit my website at leadabovenoise.com if your organization is looking to dial up its employee experience or deliver some leadership development that activates change. You can follow Modern Mentor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find and follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening and have a successful week. Modern Mentor is a quick and dirty tips podcast. It's audio engineered by Dan Farabend with script editing by Adam Cecil. Our podcast and advertising operations specialist is Morgan Christensen. Our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings. And our marketing and publicity associate is Davina Tomlin. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. And afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Selling smoothies is what I do. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.